I'm Fran, and this is Consent Based Everything, a podcast about creating a culture of consent in our homes and beyond. Hi, welcome to episode four of the podcast. I'm chatting with Eloise Rickman today, and I'm super excited. Um, I have been a, a kind of a big fan and follower of Eloise for many years now. And um, I'm going to let Eloise introduce herself, but I did did want to say that like, that actually you're maybe the first person that actually said consent-based. And so that's when kind of it it clicked for me in a way. I think it was on your um, home education course, uh, which is amazing. And I highly recommend it. Um, which I did, um, I think I even did it before we were home educating. It was like, I was thinking about it. And that's when I did it. And you were talking about how, um, you know, what you kind of root your home education in. And you said consent-based. And I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. So um, anyway, I will let you say a little bit about yourself. Ah, oh, thanks, Fran. I'm so happy to be here. And it's been so lovely. Like, listening to some of your past episodes on this podcast as well. Um, I'm so pleased that someone has created a podcast like this. So thank you very much. Um, So yeah, as you mentioned, uh, one of the things that I do is I work with parents um, and I've been doing that for, goodness, the last like four or five years now, um, working with parents sort of all over the world, primarily online. Um, And I run courses around home education, but also sort of what I'm terming sort of rights-based parenting um parenting which has sort of children's rights and children's liberation at its heart um and I'm also quite interested in alternative education as well you know not just sort of home education and school education but those kind of you know the the sort of gray area in the middle um and I am particularly interested in this because I also as you mentioned sort of home educate my own daughter as well um and at the time of recording she is nearly eight and she's never been to nursery or school. So it's something that we've kind of always set out to do from the beginning. Um, though it's wonderful how it feels like a, you know, it's the the changing that's always happening both within my daughter and also within myself as a parent and home educator is definitely a, a kind of amazing and very humbling experience to, you know, having to sort of constantly be reevaluating your values and how things are working and your practices as a parent too um so I feel like that feels like a a big sort of focus of my life but also a great form of of learning for me um and also whilst I do that I'm writing uh, my second book so my first book came out in 2020 it's called Extraordinary Parenting And it was really quite a short, accessible guide looking at sort of peaceful, rights-based parenting and education. And I wrote it primarily to sort of support parents who were having a really hard time during the COVID lockdowns and pandemic. Um, I was having a lot of messages and emails and requests and texts, both from kind of clients and from friends saying like, okay, you homeschool, like, what do I do in this time? And so I wanted to create something which would, you know, both be relevant outside of pandemics, but also something which, you know, so much of the the advice suddenly felt like it no longer applied to a lot of parents who were in the position they never thought they would find themselves in. And now I'm currently writing a book which still doesn't have a title (laughs) because I'm very indecisive, Um, but which will probably come out at some point next year. And it is looking at... um, kind of ideas around children's rights and children's liberation. And again, it's written sort of aimed primarily at parents or people with children in their lives. Um, But it's sort of going a little bit more deeply into some of these ideas and looking not just at parenting, but also at sort of societal questions around children's rights too. Um, So looking both at things that parents might be able to impact on sort of immediately, you know, changes they might make in their homes, Um, but also looking at the wider issues that I think we really need to be thinking about because they might not affect our children, but they will affect children as a social group. So it's a sort of, 
I'm hoping that parents who are interested in, you know, sort of gentle parenting or maybe thinking about alternative education, but who maybe haven't had as much time to think more widely about this, the social structures and issues affecting children will find it useful. Um, yeah. And then finally, as a kind of a last point, which I know we've just been chatting about because we're both doing something similar, is I'm also doing a part-time master's in children's rights, which kind of is allowing me to go a little bit more um, kind of deeper and geekier theoretically than the book would allow me to do. Um, and I'm really enjoying doing that. And it's it's also a really interesting lesson as we were just discussing in sort of, yeah, being back in an educational institution and thinking about things like grading and thinking about things like the power differences in the classroom or the seminar room and how I feel about those things (laughs) now that I've been sort of interrogating them with my daughter. So there you go. Lots to, lots of hats to be worn. Going on, yeah. I mean, I certainly feel about even just going back to university to start the masters. I had a lot of questions around, like, why am I doing this? Like, why do I talk so much about, like, um, you know, learning is everywhere. We don't need to have our learning validated. Like, you don't need a certificate to prove that you can do something. And then I'm going back to university to do like a sanctioned course like an official course and you know it doesn't mean it's a bad thing necessarily but like there's certainly questions that come up around yeah and I've been so aware this time as well of like the kind of academic gatekeeping that -hmm. happens as well you know the fact that now because I've been paying lots of money to be able to do this course I now have access to a beautiful range of academic libraries and I can access any journal I want online and I have access to you know fantastic professors and PhD students who are able to offer advice and guidance and point me in the direction of different things and um, it yeah even in the way that a lot of academic writing is kind of you know the language that's used but feels again very gatekeeping Mm -hmm. um it's definitely been kind of eye-opening thinking about you know who like you say who sanctions this but also who has access to it and who does it serve and whose interests do these big academic institutions kind of uphold and yeah and I'm shocked like by all the research and the papers that have been written around um the early so I'm doing a early years education so um you know the all of all everything that's been written about early years education from a lens of like respecting children and children's rights um that is just not out there like nobody is reading this uh it's not in the public domain um all of us who you know are kind of home educating or I used to be a Montessori guide so like in the classroom we had don't have access to any of this or don't even know where to look for it or that it exists yeah and I think that is a deep frustration of so much academic writing is that you know people pour their heart and souls into papers and you know sometimes of academic papers you know no one reads them six people read them ten people read them and like you say you know I've found a wealth of like really radical writing out there around children's rights about seeing children as full agents in their lives you know looking at the way that children resist and participate in society and yet none of this is translating to public policy very little is translating into sort of you know the the relationships that we have within our families within our schools within childcare systems and it feels really frustrating that there is such a gap between the sort of you know, this body of of knowledge and of ideas and, you know, the, the amazing radical discussions that happen in seminar rooms and in, you know, meetings, um, and then how this stays within these kind of, you know, the, these islands of, of learning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually doing that work. Sometimes it feels a bit like we're all talking about it, but like the people who are actually in working in like, I don't know, hospitals or like, social workers or educators of all kinds are not don't have access to this stuff and even sometimes even if they could read it 
they wouldn't want to because it's written, like you said, like the language is so pointlessly complicated sometimes that you could really explain the same concepts like much more simply and maybe maybe people would be more willing to like entertain them you know yeah I really agree I think it would be fantastic if it became mandatory for all <laughs> academics to have to you know like have training on how do you write for people to understand you um, and it's something I feel quite strongly about. Before I had my daughter, I was, um, I worked in press offices. So I worked um, in, I did lots of kind of political press work. And I feel so passionately about like taking complicated issues and making them accessible to people, which is actually something I think, you know, this podcast is all about consent, you know, being able to be informed and being able to understand what you're signing up to and why you do the things that you do. I think feels like such an important part, you know, not just of consenting to things, but just to being a citizen, you know, in a democratic society, you know, how, how are we supposed to really engage with things if so many of the ideas are made inaccessible to us, or we're not given the skills to really understand what's going on around us? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think, I mean, going back to the whole parenting thing it's it was interesting I was talking about gentle parenting with, on Instagram a little bit um last week and um anyway with there were various conversations that were going on but um I think because you mentioned sort of rights-based parenting I feel like that's almost like the next step I mean it's not obviously a hierarchy or anything like that but in terms of like taking it a little bit further and actually recognizing that children have certain rights or that we're parenting in a way where we want to like um yeah respect our children's rights and kind of al also acknowledge that they're a marginalized group and that they are in some ways oppressed by society and also individual people and uh yeah and that our parenting needs to reflect that yeah, absolutely. And I think that was very much the sort of, you know, the, I hate the word journey, but the sort of journey that I went on, you know, when my daughter was very little, I was very interested in, you know, both sort of parenting in a way which felt sort of instinctively right to me, but also not falling into, you know, some of the, some of the ways in which I was parented myself. And I was lucky I had a very loving family life. But my parents, probably similar to most people listening to this, also did things that I you know, as a parent would absolutely not want to replicate with my own daughter. And I'm sure she'll say the same things when she grows up too. Um, and so I was very interested in thinking about, you know, how do we parent in a way which feels aligned with our values? And, you know, my husband and I, when our daughter was teeny tiny, both read Alfie Cohn's work and we're both kind of like, this is mind blowing. You know, this is both like really um, confronting in lots of ways, especially what he writes around sort of things like praise, which I think instinctively both of us would have felt was a really positive thing to do with children, um, but also felt very validating in terms of like, oh, okay, there is a different way to do things. And maybe some of the, the sort of instinctive unease that we feel around some mainstream sort of what I might term now, if I was being very unkind, sort of control-based parenting practices, you know, maybe there is something else on offer. And then the more that I sort of read and reflected and thought about things, um, the more it felt like, you know, gentle parenting, I think, is useful and really useful in terms of giving parents who are looking for a different way a set of tools, essentially. You know, I think... It's not something that I have ever found especially useful, but I know lots of parents that I work with find some of the kind of scripts that certain gentle parenting writers share, you know, really useful actually in terms of breaking out of old habits or out of old ways of interacting with their children. Um, and so I think it's very useful from a sort of, you know, starting to move and shift away. But like you said, I think then it invites questions which take you a little bit deeper around what is the power of relationship with, I have with my child. And I think that's something that most gentle parenting books or experts don't really address. You know, it feels like another way 
to get things done a lot of the time but to get things done in a way that feels more respectful to children in a way that does you know honor the fact that they have different feelings and needs and you know I think the big shift that we're starting to see in a lot of you know slightly more mainstream writing around parenting and education is this real understanding now that behavior isn't something which is isolated you know this is something which comes from what children are experiencing what their needs are in that moment but their needs might not be getting met um and I think that is really positive actually and I think there is a big shift happening in in parenting and in education practices it might not be happening as fast as we would like it to but I am really seeing that that shift happening which I feel very excited about mm-hmm. um and I think we can go further and start really interrogating you know what what values are we are we holding up both within the kind of institutions of childhood you know in the family and in the school settings and I think thinking about you know children's rights and children's liberation um, are ways to help us sort of go deeper into that and start thinking about things you know both sort of in terms of the impact on individual children um, but also thinking about you know more generally what kind of world do we want to live in what kind of society do we want to live in and how does the way that we tend to raise and educate children you know what impact does this have on so many of our societal problems um and I think you know we are now collectively much better identifying things like sexism or racism or ableism and you know the work of fantastic writers and campaigners and individuals and groups who have made it easier for us to be able to have the language to describe these things and to notice these things and I think to you know sort of develop ourselves as people and say oh you know actually I'm having you know thoughts or I'm having reactions to this which don't necessarily align with my values can I start interrogating this further can I look at what I might be able to change Mm. and I think we need to have the same sort of movement really when it comes to how we think about children and really um, being able to notice what we'd call adultism you know the sort of the systematic oppression which children face based Mm -hmm. only on their age and like everything else you know this is something which is intersectional so black children might have a harder time than white children disabled children might have a harder time children who are not disabled um and I think it's it's one of the kind of you know I know that there are some who will say oh all these labels aren't helpful but I think it's really useful for us to be able to have the language to talk about these things and to realize even though it might feel really deeply uncomfortable and horrible but sometimes you know we are we are sometimes upholding quite oppressive power structures over the people that we love the most in the entire world and that we're also not noticing when oppression is happening to other children too so I think there's those kind of two parts of it yeah there are and I think I think it it can be really uncomfortable to go beyond the sort of like I'm being respectful to my child and I'm you know, not praising and whatever, you know, and doing all the scripts and like kind of doing gentle parenting right, Um, whatever that means to individual people. I think it can be really uncomfortable because once you start to to recognize the power imbalances between adult and child, you might then be forced to recognize other power imbalances in society, right? And, And once you start doing that, everything gets much more uncomfortable and I think a lot of people just don't want to go there or are maybe reluctant to go there for whatever reason and also some people actually don't believe it's a thing and and I've come across many of them and I think that's obviously a separate but big issue um and I think the the other thing you were saying about the language that we're now using for children all that, all that language comes from, um, you know, anti-racism educators and um, other people who have been working for decades around um, sexism, racism, all the other isms, right? So I feel like we owe like a huge, you know, as parents, like as parents dealing with this and like trying to understand it, we owe a huge debt to like all that work that's come 
before because we're only now really realizing about or at least I am I'm sure some people realized before you know have realized for a while but that it's only now sort of translating to like children and young people more broadly definitely and you know like we were saying earlier in our conversation what has been really eye-opening for me is realizing that you know actually people have been writing and talking about how we treat children in this way you know well actually for sort of you know as long as people have been writing and talking about things but specifically you know in in larger quantities you know since the 70s and that is 50 years of discourse that has been happening um and like you say a lot about being led by you know kind of communities and people who we might consider sort of marginalized or people who have been underserved who are you know noticing both the kind of radical potential of changing how we treat one another as humans and also for real like disastrous implications of upholding kind of harmful power imbalances within our societies mm-hmm. um and i think it is you know as you say none of these things stand in isolation um i think this is something that feels incredibly you know <laughs> clear to me while, whilst i'm trying to write the book that i'm writing at the moment you know and how enmeshed all of these different sort of you know, power structures are and how so often it comes back to, you know, who are they serving really? Um, And I think, like you say, that can be very uncomfortable to start looking at um, because I think a lot of the time we don't tend to see our kind of intimate daily lives with our children um, and the choices we make for them around which daycare they go to, which school they go to. You know, even though we might understand that education itself is political we don't tend to think of those you know intimate daily moments of our children as political with a sort of big p Mm -hmm. and yet i think when we start thinking about things like children's liberation it shows you that really it is such a political act to enter into um and i think that is it's difficult and it's something i'm definitely still grappling with myself Mm -hmm. and also it's difficult to talk about it in everyday life i find Like, I don't find that many people, you know, off of Instagram in just my real life who will have conversations about children's rights and especially children's liberation uh, and like power dynamics and adultism. Like it's, you know, it would be nice to, for it to be more of a conversation that people can have. I agree. And this is like, this is why I'm writing the book that I'm writing at the moment. I really hope it will serve as, um, as a starting point for people to have conversations and to start thinking about things a little bit differently. Um, And, you know, I think that we are can often be so focused in like changing things and acting differently and doing things quickly. And I think sometimes, you know, one of the biggest changes we can make is just to sit with things a little bit and start thinking about them differently and start maybe changing the way, you know, I would love to, for us to start changing the way that we see children and start rethinking, you know, how is it that we, we picture children? How is it that we societally hold children and their role in society? Um, You know, I think we tend to see children as future people a lot of the time even if we are very, you know, very much in love with the children that we have in our lives here and now, I think still so often, both in our actions as parents and as educators, we can really fall into the trap of seeing them as, you know, an an unfinished person whom our actions as adults can either serve to kind of, you know, refine and polish them so they become good, competent adults or can do the opposite and can sort of dull them. Um, And I think that so often that language really hides and obscures the fact that children are, are full humans in the here and now, you know, even if they're one or two years old, um, you know, they might have different abilities to us and they might have different capabilities, but they are, you know, they're, they're, they're people, you know, Charlotte Mason um, uses the term kind of born persons, which I think is really lovely. Um, and I think just starting to, you know, when we start looking around us at how children are treated I think it can be really eye-opening you know here in the UK um, it's not uncommon to see signs in shops especially near schools saying 
no more than one or two school-aged children at a time. Um, or to see signs in um, parks or on grasses saying like, no ball games, you know, no playing. And, you know, it's just those little things that feel very, um, you know, none of those things by themselves feel particularly terrible, particularly dreadful. But when you start kind of putting them together, I think it starts to build a picture of how we see children. And I think that is often, you know, we see them as unable to make sort of rational decisions. We see them as incapable a lot of the time. Um, I think often we see them as kind of inherently bad and in need of correction. And I think that often, you know, can be a sort of hangover or a product of, um, you know, certain kind of, you know, religious communities and education. You know, I grew up, um, when I was a child, my parents were religious. And, you know, I was taught that we are born sinful, that we're born bad. And it's only by having a very strict sort of correction that you become good or worthy in the eyes of God. Um, and I think that, you know, even for many of us who don't feel particularly, you know, attached to that sort of religious view, I think that has had an impact on the way that we see children in society, the way that we feel we really have to discipline children so that, you know, we don't spoil them or we don't ruin them for later, that we instill good habits in them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think just, you know, that in itself, thinking about, well, how do we see children? How are children reflected and represented in our society? What kind of language do we use? You know, we use words like puerile, infantile, childish, you know, all of these things are used as insults. Um, and, you know, I think just, just in the way that, for example, we might start recognizing when we use language, which is ableist, I think it can be interesting to start thinking about, you know, what are my, what are my perceptions when it comes to thinking about children? Do I hold any assumptions about them? Do I see them as, you know, solely sort of vulnerable and in need of help do I see them as solely sort of you know annoying I think you know and I think that again the language you know in no other social group I think would it be um would it be socially acceptable to say oh I don't like these people yeah. you know and we see it sometimes with men at the moment on the kind of you know the manosphere kind of Andrew Tate type people who are like oh you know I don't really like women and we see that as shocking right we see it as like okay this is not a good sign and yet it is still not seen as particularly shocking when adults say oh I just don't like children I don't like them um which you know again it feels like you know maybe that's something we should be interrogating you know if I said to you oh I just don't like disabled people you would, I think, quite rightly pull me up on that and be quite shocked and appalled. And yet we say, oh, I just don't like kids. And people are, oh, fair enough. Okay, well. Yeah, just, you know, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually, Maybe you know, fine, you know, yes, they can be loud. Um, so I think, yeah, there is a sort of, you know, there's a, a collective discussion, which I think we need to start opening out a little bit more, which is just sort of interrogating, like, why is it that we feel but it's okay to treat children in this way. Why is it that we feel it's okay for children to not be able to vote when we know that their futures are gonna be so deeply affected by the political decisions which are happening now? Why is it that we don't give children more freedom and choice when it comes to deciding on how they spend their days, particularly within school settings, for example? Um, and I guess this is where, you know, it feels like this is the discussion around sort of the liberation rather than sort of children's rights. Mm -hmm. And this is the idea of, you know, actually children, if when we start looking at them through the lens of a group who are discriminated against on the basis of their age, then I think it starts opening up a lot of these very interesting questions for us to start engaging with. And again, you know, as I said, I don't, I'm, I'm writing the book that I'm writing at the moment, not from the perspective of having all the answers, but rather from a perspective of I'm kind of interested in how, in how these things, you know, how people are trying to answer these questions and, and trying to make sense of it myself. Um, but it feels like a question that we probably, as adults, have a duty to start grappling with. I wanted to ask you about um, when 
what how do you distinguish between like children's rights and child liberation yes that's a good question <laughs> we probably should have come to that first so for me children's rights are um you know they, they are really kind of a sort of you know legal almost sort of um, universal framework you know so when I talk about children's rights I'm thinking about um, you know the UN Declaration of Human Rights I'm thinking about the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child um, which was a really historic rights document mm -hmm. um, which kind of came into force in a lot of countries around the world sort of in um, 1989 sort of onwards um, interestingly the US hasn't signed up to it um, but you know, so many countries has its most widely ratified um, rights document in the world. And that lays out sort of you know, basic rights that children should have access to. Um, and, you know, when we're looking at these big rights documents, they're looking primarily at the duties that governments have or big government institutions have. So when we're thinking about children's rights um, in the UN Convention on the Rights of a Child, for example, you know, there are things like the right to education, the right to, um, you know, live as, as healthy a life as possible, the right to not be separated from your parents apart from in certain situations, um, you know, the right to play and leisure and cultural activities. And these are things which, you know, primarily would sit at a, a sort of institutional or governmental level. Although I think actually for parents, it's really important for us to be um, well, you know, well familiarised with these rights, because we have a duty, I think, as well, to be ensuring that we are supporting these. And there are, you know, what I really love about it is it contains things like the fact that children have a right to be listened to and to have their opinions taken seriously. And that, you know, actually, although parents also have a right to be raising their children in accordance with their own parental values, it says that, you know, it should also, parenting should recognise children's growing capacity to be able to make decisions for themselves. And I think this is the first time that within these sorts of rights discourses that people were really putting this sort of in black and white on paper, that this is actually something that we should be aiming for. Um, so I think rights are really useful, partly because actually, you know, when there is a right, there is also always going to be a corresponding duty for someone to be delivering or supporting or safeguarding that right. And so when children's rights are being, um, you know, not taken seriously, there is a pushback to say, well, look here in black and white, it says that you've, this is a document you've signed up to. And it says that I have a right to X, Y, Z, and that's not happening at the moment. That's the theory of it. In practice, of course, it doesn't always work like that. And again, the UK is a really good example. You know, we signed up to the UN Declaration of the Rights of a Child. We were very, um, you know, we were very proud of having done so. And yet we're failing quite miserably, actually. Um, and there is no real legal framework for any sort of penalties when these rights are not being fully supported or actualized. Uh, a great example of this is that in England, although not in Scotland and Wales, and as of quite recently, it's still legal for parents to hit their children as a sort of reasonable punishment, um, which, you know, anyone who looks deeply <laughs> at children's rights can quite obviously see that this, you know, contravenes their rights and is absolutely not acceptable. Um, and this is something where the UK has had quite a lot of pushback on, actually, from um, of the Commissioner on Children's Rights. And yet it's still something that, you know, even quite recently it was debated in um, Westminster and it was just, you know, seen as well, this is a, a decision for parents to be making. And similarly, the UK has come under a lot of pressure about the fact that child poverty here is so appalling and so many children just have a dreadful dreadful life chances because of it um and it contravenes again you know lots of their rights you can't really learn very well if you are tired and hungry because you're living in a hostel and your parents can't afford to buy you food um you know it, but yet again you know these are things where it's not actually you know there there is no higher body which is going to fine us or hold us to account for it um and there are lots of other, you know, problems with sort of legal rights we could go into, but probably we don't have time for here. Um, you know, they are also, you know, shockingly, although perhaps not, although it's a declaration of the rights of a child, 
children were not at all involved in its drafting you know no, no children were consulted about it um and it's also you know lots of people have you know argued that actually it's a very western view of what rights and individual liberties look like and there's a, an african charter on sort of childhood rights which is sort of a separate document and it's quite interesting in that they share a lot of similar features but in the african charter um there is much more focus on sort of children's role in community and interdependence so there's stuff in there around you know respecting your elders and the duty that the child has to also be sort of supportive of their family and of their community and of sort of um you know for african nations and so you know you can see that rights are not these sort of things that float about independently you know they have been created by humans living in a very specific you know culture and context um but i do think that regardless of the problems of them i think they're very useful for us to be thinking about and um but i think that rights are you know they're not supposed to be the be an be an end all um they're supposed to be the basics you know they're supposed to be like this is the most basic thing that you're entitled to you're entitled to these rights mm -hmm. and they're not supposed to be like the gold standard um and so i think this is where the sort of difference between children's rights and children's liberation comes in so you know really as a standard every child should be getting their rights met and i really recommend um to anyone who doesn't feel familiar with children's rights to go and look on the unicef website there's a brilliant summary where you can read about all of the different rights there um but you know it's not and it's not enough either you know you could still be getting all of those rights met and it still wouldn't really take into account the fact that children have such a sort of power imbalance when it comes to adults and as I've mentioned you know there are lots of things which we sort of take for granted as adults things like the right to vote things like um you know the right to have your voice heard in different settings that we still don't offer to children and I think so for me children's rights is sort of the basic and what we should all be sort of doing even when it feels difficult so they don't really tackle the systemic Exactly. And for me, that's the sort of the children's liberation is really looking at adultism and how we tackle adultism, both within our sort of daily lives and within um, bigger institutional changes. Um, but it, I, I also want to sort of just reflect here that there is also something inherently difficult and I think problematic about me as an adult talking about sort of what children's liberation is um you know in the same way that I would not want two men to be sitting here being like oh well I'll tell you what I think women's lib is about <laughs> you know I think it's really important that children have their own voice and are able to be listened to and I think this is why some of our role as adults especially adults who care about children's liberation and this idea that children should be free from oppression um is that it has to be, you know, really centre children's voices and it has to be about how do we facilitate children having a seat at the table and making decisions about the things that matter to them. Um, and again, there's like a growing body of really positive practice. You know, I've seen universities, for example, who now, instead of just doing research on children, are collaborating with children to kind of co-create and co-define what that research looks like and carrying it out with children themselves. And I think, you know, this is a start of, you know, that could be, that sort of thing could be involved in so many different settings in life. Um, so I think liberation is about going even deeper and saying, okay, children's rights are sort of a basic that children need to have a decent chance in life. And, and liberation is going further still and really looking at those problematic power structures. Um, and I think that's why we see so much crossover with things like the climate crisis that we have at the moment and, you know, sort of the, the patriarchal waters in which we all swim um, and is looking much more clearly at yeah, uh, power and an oppression, which can, again, feel a little bit more tricky sometimes. Yeah. And I think also, like you said, it's kind of an uncomfortable place to be as an, as an adult because you're very aware. And I certainly am, you know, talking about this a lot. I'm very aware that, you know, I don't want to be like liberating children, you know, because that's shouldn't it, it liberation should really be in their hands. Right. Um, but at the same time, 
they don't have any power in society. So there's that, right? Which is why we're talking about it. And obviously it's a good thing that we're talking about it. But yes, ideally we should be doing it with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is why I'm really interested um, in the idea of like children's resistance. It's a topic that I feel, yeah, really like very interested in at the moment. And it's not something that I have read a huge amount about um and it's something I'm thinking a lot about at the moment and how you know we we tend to think about political resistance as looking a certain way because we see it through an adult lens so we tend to see political resistance as protesting or as you know direct action like we see for example with just stop oil you know throwing paint at things blockading roads um we see it as lobbying um, you know, there are all these different ways in which we see sort of political resistance. Um, and yet when children resist oppressive situations, um, we don't see it as political. We don't see it as resistance. We tend to see it as bad behavior or we see it as being naughty or making bad choices. Um, and so I'm very interested in trying to change the way that we experience children's bad behavior um and seeing you know are there situations and I'm sure there are lots of them where rather than seeing it as like this is a completely irrational response that this young person is having seeing it as actually a lot of the time you know when children misbehave at school I think it can be read as a very rational response to trying to survive within a, a structure which is really you know doesn't have always their best interests in mind and doesn't uphold you know their rights to be able to participate to have their voices listened to and I think when we start seeing children's actions in this light I think we can see that actually it isn't you know that children need to be liberated and need to be kind of um you know we need to give them the tools for these things but actually that a lot of the time if we slightly changed the way that we are understanding how children are pushing back and dissenting and resisting then we can see that actually children are already telling us pretty loudly a lot of the time that they're really unhappy with how things are going. And it's, I think it's then where our role as adults is to listen and to pay attention and to try and make changes mm. in order to honor children's needs and demands. And I think a glaring example of this is like the so-called school refusal. I think that's mm. what they're calling it in the US. I'm not sure if they've given it a different name in the UK, but um you know, that's, that's not, it, it's seen as kind of, oh, there's a problem with the child. The child is depressed or they're anxious or, oh, why don't they want to go to school? Let's see how we can fix this. But really we could be seeing it as resistance. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. And I think schools are such a, like a great place in a way where we see children's resistance all the time in kind of little and small way, little and small ways, little and big ways. Um, from, as you say, like that downright school refusal, like I'm not going, you can't make me go. You're gonna have to drag me in there. I'm showing you, I'm not happy with going to this place. Okay. To the kind of, you know, the smaller acts of like rebellion and resistance. Like when I look back on my own time at school, particularly secondary school, you know, I think, I was a sort of probably quite a classic example of many children who academically were fine. You know, I did well at school. Um, and so I wasn't labeled as like a particularly problematic student because I always got good grades. And at the same time, I was constantly in trouble in small ways. You know, I never got kind of excluded or suspended, but I was constantly in detention for like, talking over teachers or for um like I would wear these like massive earrings constantly I had like loads of really big brightly colored earrings and our school uniform policy was very clear you know you can wear like small studs and that's it and yet every day I would go into school and I would wear another pair of brightly colored earrings <laughs> and it was almost like a kind of you know I, I don't think I had at all thought about this in these terms as a young person. But now I look back on it and I'm like, why did I keep doing this thing where every single day I would get sent out of a class to take my earrings out and told I couldn't come back in until they were out. And yet the next day I would wear a different pair and go back in. And again, it feels like such a minor, ridiculous thing. Like, come on, just take the earrings off. Like, don't wear them. You know what's going to happen. And I think, you know, it was my way of kind of going like, I'm not happy with this. I don't want you to tell me what I should be wearing. I'm not pleased about having to wear 
a school uniform. And I think, you know, even to an even like lower degree, we see it in terms of, you know, girls who like all have to wear the same skirt and who roll them up so that, you know, actually I'm not going to stick by your standards or like we were always pushing the limit with like what black shoes sort of consisted of or like we would all try and wear it was you know I grew up in kind of you know the 90s and early 2000s so we would wear these like enormous giant flared black cord trousers which like got filthy after one wear and soaked up all the rain and were just like generally not very practical and yet we would like really push the boundaries you know with what we were allowed to wear um, and this might not feel relevant for people who don't have school uniforms in their countries. But, you know, it felt like another way of kind of pushing back, actually, and not just being like, it's not just about expressing your individuality. It's not just about, um, you know, trying to push boundaries, but it's about finding a kind of relatively safe way of expressing your discontent with a system that tries to control you. Right. Um, and I think, you know, even... I think then within that, it can also then be tempting to say, okay, well, maybe that's the case for disruptive students or for students who are, you know, badly behaved. But what about the students who just keep their head down, get on with it, don't cause any trouble? Um, but I think you can see them as two sides of the same coin. You know, those students have found that actually, you know, you have to play the system. If you want to get on well and you want to avoid the detentions and the getting called out of class and getting yelled at, then you know, you play the game and you, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not affected by it, but rather that it's, you know, it's just another, it's another decision that again can feel quite rational when yeah. you're in that structure of power. So I don't think that we can necessarily say that, well, only some children are being affected by it. Yeah, absolutely. And actually I, I recently read in a book um, about the fawn response, um, yeah. which can affect uh, autistic kids, but also just neurodivergent people in general. And it's um, it's like, okay, maybe I'm not gonna be explain it exactly how it is because I've literally just read this, so I haven't looked into it too deeply, but it's basically kind of like fight or fight, fight or freeze. So it, it happens as a stress response almost. And it's just uh, a way for neurodivergent people to mask. So, and yeah. it constitutes in essentially people pleasing, going along with things, buckling down and just kind of saying yes and trying to be as non-confrontational as possible. And I'm uh, there's more to it. Um, so I'm, I'm probably not explaining it massively well, but I see this a lot. Um, and I've seen this in in the, those kids who do go along with things yeah. and who like, um seemingly uh love school and yeah. are like the good kids you know they don't get into trouble and they do all their work and they're quiet and they do all everything right like it could be that mm. but actually just oh, be like a, a not very positive response to the situation right yeah that's interesting I will go and look it up I haven't heard of it before but I will I'll do some reading that sounds interesting yeah I'd never heard and of it it's very interesting actually yeah, and you know, and you also never know what's happening in those children's personal lives either. Um, you know, and you might have a child who is coming to school from a very conflict-heavy home where that's the last thing that they want to be experiencing in their school lives either. Um, so I think it is difficult to kind of make generalizations about and you know, and I and I don't want to say that some children don't enjoy school because I've spoken to children, I know children who do enjoy it, and I think. I think sometimes the flip side of talking about children's rights and children's liberation can be a sort of saying, almost disregarding children's experiences and saying, well, because I might know that there could be another way or a better way, even though you're telling me that you're happy or even though you're telling me that you enjoy this, I'm going to tell you that you don't enjoy it and that you're kind of being deluded by a system. And I guess there are much wider questions there and very analogies of kind of choice feminism and things like that. Um, and I think there are some children for whom, you know, school is a great, actually like a great respite from daily life or who really do enjoy it and have fantastic teachers and, you know, have heads who are very visionary. And as part of research for my book, I've spoken to lots of families whose, yes, children have really struggled in school systems. And I've also spoken to families for whom 
like certain teachers in certain schools have been an absolute lifeline and you know I think this is what makes discussions around children's liberation and rights so interesting and also so difficult because so many families will you know every family has unique needs and you know preferences and it's hard to talk about children as a kind of as a cohesive social group when we know that you know children all have different yeah they're all coming from different places um and there's also the thing that they don't all have to care about children's rights and children and child liberation like it's okay to just be a person and like not have to have a cause as a young person like that's perfectly within their rights um and I think that's something that is easy to forget right absolutely and there's also a privilege in being able to kind of stand up and yeah be like asking for more freedom at school for example when as I said you know you might be coming from a home where you know mum's getting beaten up every other evening or where you don't have enough food on the table or where you know you've got shootings happening in your neighborhood um and I think that's also something that I often feel very conflicted about in my work and just in general in thinking about you know the conversations that we tend to have both sort of online and also academically in thinking about children's rights and children's liberation which often tend to focus you know thinking about like consent based education for example you know it's something I feel very interested in thinking about you know how does that work with my own daughter and thinking through lots of issues and yet you know like that feels almost laughable as a thing to be focusing on when I think about the enormous you know injustices which children face collectively um, you know, just this week alone in the UK, we've had news stories where, you know, 200 migrant children went missing recently from a hostel where they were being homed, undoubtedly in not very nice situations, you know, traumatised children who have, you know, come to England as refugees. We've had another story where disabled children in a care home were being tortured and abused by people who were supposed to be caring for them. Um you know, I could go on and on and on, but I won't because it's miserable. Um, and sometimes I think it is, you know, I think by default, if you have parents who are thinking about, you know, is your education really, you know, are we really ensuring that you're able to give informed, enthusiastic consent to these things? Or, you know, thinking about the kind of the intricacies of, you know, playing with your uniform standards. I think that we also like these things are important and I don't want to take away from that. And I do think that the way we act and live out our values in our day-to-day -day lives is really important. Um, but I do sometimes feel that real tension of like, this sometimes feels a bit like an indulgence as well, where like, yeah, if, you're, if your parents are thinking about this stuff, then you're already so privileged compared to so many children out there. And I don't know if you ever feel that, but that's definitely a tension that I feel. I do have moments well. when we're like debating the ins and outs of like consent, is it consent, isn't it? And then I'm like, and then I think about how, yes, this is uh, like, are we really dealing with the important issues here? Um, yeah. And I mean, I still think it's obviously really impo important. And I think also that like, Sure, we're, you know, we're very privileged to be able to have these conversations, but also the general kind of idea of children's rights, child liberation, consent-based parenting and education, like it, just putting that out there um, is important and people might take some bits of it uh, and then might not take other bits and that's okay, uh, but I think it's good I think it's important to put it out there, but but I see what you're saying and I certainly feel that as well sometimes. I'm like, wait, maybe I should be focusing on like, I don't know, like, you know, anything else, anything else to do with children and their well-being because, and, and I, yeah, and you can, but you can get quite, I don't know, you can get quite, um, I recently read a book actually that, I don't know if you read it, it's um, by a British I think he was the commissioner for children. Um, it's called The Betrayal of Childhood. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, the book, the book itself is not particularly well written, but it does raise all of those issues, you yeah. know, 
the the abuse and the poverty and the violence all of that and yeah like reading that book is is sobering for sure yeah it is and I think it's something that yeah like I said I sort of struggle with just in in terms of my work and what I think about and but at the same time you know philosophers usually men have spent a lot of time often their whole careers debating questions around autonomy and freedom and free will and you know more recently people you know are spending a lot of time thinking about things like consent particularly within sort of sexual relationships and I think you know no one's telling those philosophers oh you're wasting your time thinking about these big issues and I think sometimes it's because it's often mothers who are thinking about things in relation to children that we can also um like both be hard on ourselves and expect ourselves to get it all right when actually these big juicy deep philosophical discussions have been happening you know sort of for millennia but also you know if it's okay for those men to spend their careers doing that it's probably okay for us to be having these conversations and to be looking at minute details around language too you know it's right like if we put adultism as a concept out there like adultism covers all of that. It covers, you know, the horrible abuses, but it also covers like the language we use around children or whatever. Definitely. Yeah, I think there's space space for both and has to be space for both because like you say, the small can sometimes shine a light on the big and vice versa. So yeah. I think it's, you know, that's why I think, you know, talking about sort of children's rights and those big sort of rights abuses and where children are having by rights met feels like a really important base point for talking about children's liberation more widely. And then I think, you know, if we're going to be thinking about some of the children's rights, particularly rights, for example, to things like education, um, and actually, you know, within that, how do children learn? Are we just providing a right to go to school? Or, you know, actually within the right to education, that, you know, when we look at the kind of longer wording, it's around providing an education where children can sort of flourish in every aspect of their being. I can't remember the exact language, but it's about making sure that, you know, children are, are reaching their fullest potential. Um, and I think that does then raise lots of questions around, can you, you know, live life to your fullest potential? Can you have that brought out in you in a situation where you're being controlled and there's lots of arbitrary demands on you and where power is so unequal um mm -hmm. and you know where actually even though we do all have this right to do this you know can it still be said that you're having your right to education where you're not learning anything and so I think these things do really go hand in hand and raise lots of questions for us yeah absolutely um I think that's a good place to uh bring this conversation to an end even though I would just keep talking forever about this um so yeah thank you for thanks for chatting to me Eloise it's been so nice and do, would you like to tell people where to find you online yes so the best place is probably just on Instagram um which is at mighty mother underscore um and yeah you can find me there sometimes I'm trying to be better at posting more regularly although it feels like with everything else that is the thing that definitely slips but I'm gonna try and be better at being more active player um time. yeah it does <laughs> and otherwise you can find my first book extraordinary parenting kind of anywhere that you buy books and um are you going to be yeah. running courses this year or are, are you I will be I definitely will be. I need to figure out exactly when. But I think in the next couple of months, I will start running my education one again, actually. So probably in March. So you can look out for that as well. And and I have to say, and, and, and I've taken it and I absolutely loved it. And it's probably a big chunk of the reason why we even homeschool is the fact that I took your course. Um, and the great thing about it is also you can keep joining every time. And there's always new new things and new people and new ideas. And I, jo I join, like every time you run it, I join again and I always get something new out of it. So oh, I'm so pleased to hear that. That's really lovely. And I'm honoured to have played that tiny, tiny part in your life with your children. So yeah, it's lovely. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here, Louise. Oh, thank you.
been so nice chatting to you, Fran. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. You can find me, Fran, at Big Mothering on Instagram. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider rating or reviewing it. It makes a huge difference. And thank you and bye-bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.